Welcome to Pop Cultural Osmosis. My name is Kyle Diaz. And I'm Ryan Harrington. And this week, our opening segment, we're going to do favorite video game that came out in 2013. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk too much about video games last year. We both had a couple of uh, releases that we really enjoyed and, and wanted to talk about and, and just kind of do a quick thing here at the at the beginning. Um, Ryan, why don't you kick us off? Why don't you tell us what your favorite video game was that you played in 2013? Um, so... My favorite video game from 2013 is Blizzard's uh, free-to-play Hearthstone digital uh, collectible card game. Um, if you're familiar with, you know, Magic the Gathering or, I don't know, Yu-Gi-Oh! Pokemon card games, it's a similar idea. You create a deck of cards with, I don't know, minions and spells, and you try and kill your uh, opponent before he kills you. Um, it's based on, uh, Blizzard's immensely successful, uh, Warcraft, uh, universe, and actually based on a World of Warcraft in-game card game, I believe. Oh, I don't weird, I didn't play, know that. That's I don't actually cool. play, uh, World of Warcraft, <laughs> so I don't quite know, mm-hmm. but, um, I mean, yeah, no, it's really funny, because I don't play World of Warcraft at all, but since I have a very long history with Magic the Gathering... I was very excited for this game, and I found it very fun. It's Mm -hmm. much simpler than Magic the Gathering, much more straightforward. Games are quicker. Um, Obviously, the card pool, since it's very new, is a lot smaller. But um, it makes for a very clean and simple user interface and very fun experience. I seem to remember playing some kind of Magic the Gathering game on a computer that was similar, where, you, you know, a similar, like, kind of card-based uh, game. I can't for the life of me remember what system it was or anything like that. I just, when I was a kid, I just remember playing at my friend's house Ma- Magic the Gathering games against him. Um, it, it's, you know, if for people who haven't ever tried it before, it's like a surprisingly fun mechanic for, you know, you think it's just like, you know, playing cards on a, it's just, it just seems strange but it's 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 surprisingly fun i would say and blizzard does a very impressive job with just um their art direction and um the user interface which has a lot of like so on like your opponent's turn it's obviously like a turn-based card game mm-hmm. and on your opponent's turn you really don't have anything active to do mm-hmm. and so blizzard like Blizzard is there are several different quote unquote like boards that mm-hmm. the that you play on and on the sides there's like you know like a catapult or trees or like a little castle or something and everything's kind of clickable and interactable so like you can make like uh, a waterfall create a rainbow and you can squash little flowers and stuff that grow back mm-hmm. so just like these nice little flourishes that are fun to sort of distract you from an otherwise uh, unengaging time in playing the game. Mm-hmm. And this has become, you know, you mentioned in before we started recording that you've been watching a lot of the uh, kind of streaming gameplay videos, and I get the sense that this is, like, pretty much tailor-made for that kind of, like, uh, audience uh, interaction or, or, or kind of... Uh, it's, it's, it's just as good as a spectator sport as it is a, a, to actually play. Uh, in some ways, um, yeah. I mean, 
if you remember what oh my god now almost 10 years ago when poker got really big on ESPN mm-hmm. um it's sort of that same thing where like you can see the person's cards and you sort of playing along with them as they make these decisions and then actually um it is and then there are actually have been um, bigger ter- actual tournaments, mm-hmm. which have third-party commentators that have cameras on both player sides. So you have um, perfect information on mm-hmm. the state of the game while each player is competing um, with, quote-unquote, imperfect information, mm-hmm. which makes it a very interesting to... Uh, viewers in the sense that they should be able to know what like the correct decision would be Mm -hmm. but since the players don't have the information on the other side they can only guess Mm -hmm. Mm all right well anything else on hearthstone not really again it's uh free to play anyone can download it from uh the blizzard website give it a try Mm -hmm. um yeah, and it came out in beta release last year, but just kind of ended full release just a couple weeks ago. So it's still, it's still know. very new. There are mm-hmm. a lot of other new players in there, so mm-hmm. don't feel discouraged. Cool. Well, um, my pick for this is a very different type of game. Um, it's a, a game called Gone Home that was released in August of uh, last year. Um, Gone Home is. Um, it's an interesting game. It's available for just about any platform you have. So um, it's available for Windows. It's available for OS X. It's available for, uh, I think, iOS and, and stuff like that are coming later if they haven't already come out for those platforms, um, as well as for consoles and stuff like that. Um, and it... Uh, oh, it also has a Linux platform. I know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, um, it's, a, it's very... Uh, friendly to non-gamers so if you're a non-gamer and you're wondering why we're doing this segment um i think both of the games that we're talking about are actually pretty pretty friendly to people who don't traditionally enjoy video games or think they're not good at video games or anything like that um but gone home is it's it's kind of more like almost kind of interactive storytelling or interactive fiction um you you basically you play as a a girl a like a 17 or 18 year old girl named caitlin who comes home to her house and her house is empty. She can't find her family. She doesn't know where anybody is, um, and she kind of has to explore. Um, the 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 story is that she's been abroad for like a study abroad, and she comes home, and her family's moved in the meantime. So she's never been to this new house, um, and things are kind of still in boxes and, and kind of set all around. Um, and she has to explore the house and look for clues and try to figure out like where her family is and, and what's happened to them and, and what's been going on with her family for the intervening year. Um, there's a couple different aspects of it that I really, really enjoy. First of all, the gameplay is extremely simple. Uh, it requires basically no talent or skill at all. You're just wandering around and clicking on things. Um, so if you can use a computer, you can play this game. Um, and uh, it, it involves one of my favorite activities, which is uh, snooping through other people's stuff. This is like <laughs> a really bad character trait of mine that I just really, really like to go through You know, people's drawers, people's bookshelves. Like, uh, you know, just look at whatever they have lying on their kitchen counter. And this game is all about that. You can open, pick up, uh, look around, uh, examine anything that you want. And you don't even have to feel bad about it because you're trying to solve a mystery and it's your own family. So, uh, you know, um, it's a way to kind of give yourself that uh, 
moralistic cover, I guess. Um, <laughs> so it really it really indulges that that side of my personality, um, and, and it's a really deeply engaging piece of fiction. Um, you. Uh, are, are dealing with a lot of familial drama. It, it starts out as feeling like one kind of game, almost, almost kind of like a horror kind of game. And without giving away too much, I'll just say that they're kind of using genre trappings. Um, oops, sorry, drop some stuff. They're kind of using the the genre trappings as like a feint um, to fake you out a little bit. And, and the game takes a turn that I don't think very many people would uh, would expect. But it's really, really deep and, and thematically rewarding. Um, emotionally affecting you come to really care about her whole family and, and about her by exploring everything and uh, it's really just a fantastic game it's not very long it's only about four or five hours um, and it, it, a lot of people have complained about that because it is uh, usually 20 bucks although it's often on sale for like as cheap as five dollars um, but I think it's very 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 much worth uh, the 20 bucks if you would spend you know, twelve dollars to go to the movies for two hours. I think that makes sense to spend twenty dollars to play this video game for for four hours. Um, and it really does reward people who take their time and look at everything. There are entire subplots that uh, you know that you can miss or, or things that you can n- end up not uh, examining if you kind of rush through too quickly. Um, so yeah, Gone Home. It's a really really fantastic game, uh, and you can play it almost anywhere and no matter who you are. I would really recommend it. It's just about everybody. I mean, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's really like less a game and more like, like a yeah, like, like, like interactive the, the, fiction. Like it's, I mean, yeah, they call it interactive fiction. Yeah, yeah right. Like, it, it's not exactly a choose your own adventure, but it is kind of. Um, I don't know. There's something about it that's like it, I'm trying to struggle with another. That's why video games seems like the best, even though it doesn't require much gameplay skill. But I can't think of a kind of analogous other. Um, format. So <laughs> right, it it it's really like right at that line that separates like just pure storytelling with video games, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because like ostensibly games should have ways to win and or lose, yeah. or at least you know make progress versus not make progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is really, they just use this interactive component, I think, brilliantly as a way to to engage and draw you into to the narrative. Yeah, it's really like an unlosable video game. Like, there's no way to not, as long as you do what it tells you to do and explore the house and eventually make your way to the top. I mean, actually, that's not true. There are some admittedly pretty easy puzzles where it's possible to get stuck and not know quite where you're supposed to go and, you know, not know that you're supposed to slide this panel that way or whatever. Um, but really, you know, it, it's 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 like somebody just, you know, dropped you off at a house and said, look at everything in this house until you figure out what happened to the people inside. Like, it's a game, it's fun, It's but it's, it's not, it doesn't require any skill except kind of deduction um, and... Uh, attention to detail and stuff like that right i can't i feel like we did talk about this on our old episode where we talked about video games that we played growing up Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways it it's a lot like mist Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and where it's it's all it's like purely story again as we say and then like like there are except mist like the puzzles were a lot harder yeah yeah (laughs) especially when i was eight (laughs) (laughs) but i mean 
it's really like something if you take your time like you don't you can't quote unquote lose mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. just sit there for a while and i mean maybe i guess you get frustrated but yeah it is a lot easier than mist it's like a it is it's like mist if mist was way more interested in telling the story of how you came to land on the island in the first place and less about trying to figure out how to arrange these seven gears so that you can get to the next, like, you know, stupid fucking place <laughs> you're trying to get to. It's my experience with Mist personally. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so, it, it's... it's And, and uh, it, it's also... It's set in, like, the mid-90s. Um, I think that it really, truly hits the nostalgia button hard for people who were probably 10... 5 to 10 years older than me. Um because I, I never really, like, when I was a kid, I guess I, like, taped stuff off of the... I, I, di- I didn't, like, you know, make a bunch of mixed cassette tapes and, you know, subscribe to zines and all that kind of stuff like like the people in this uh, do. But it still hammers the nostalgia button pretty hard, even for me. Um, so that is another really engaging aspect of it, that it's not today's world. It, it is kind of a period piece, even if that period piece is just, you know, around the time of our childhoods. Yeah, it's a really fantastic game. And I think it's interesting that both of us chose games that are not at all traditional first-person shooter or third-person shooter, shoot people with guns kind of games. Um, I still like those kind of games, and I think that they are still probably what people think of when they think of video games. Um, But this is a really great time for indie game developers. There's lots of distribution channels and stuff like that available. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's really exciting. And... uh, you know, I'm not sure that a game like Gone Home could have come out in 2000 and found somebody who was willing to like put it onto CD-ROMs and ship it into stores all over across the country. Um, it, well, I don't know. I mean, again, Mist was wildly successful, and, true, in, in large part because non-gamers were playing, like people's like mothers were playing Mist yeah. on their home PC. Yeah, I think I just think it's now much easier to dis- to get. Distribute, get these products distributed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I'm very hopeful that we see more of them. Yeah, me too. You were issued a private investigator's license for your 18th birthday. What do you think that says about a person? Compulsive, addictive personality, but that's not me anymore. My daughter, the big shot New York lawyer. You're destined for greatness. I've oversold you. My parents don't think that I could have landed a creature such as the one that I've described. Local authorities have ruled the death a homicide and are focusing their investigation on her boyfriend, Logan Eccles. I need your help, Veronica. I don't really do that anymore. So we talked about this on the podcast a while back when the Kickstarter was happening. It must have been about a year ago this time. I mean, I'm yeah, if I remember correctly, the movie premiered the day after the one the day after the one year anniversary of the Kickstarter either opening or closing. I can't remember which now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been about a year, give or take. Yeah. So basically, uh, you know, the Veronica Mars is was the uh awesome and um yeah uh kind of smart dark funny t- uh teenage detective story that ran on was it wb or cw at that time uh or, or, it was uh, it was actually upn and okay. then 
the CW. Um, and uh, starring Kristen Bell and, and basically set in her hometown of Neptune, she kind of solves mysteries and there were these great season arcs and stuff like that. And it went through a very successful Kickstarter campaign last year, raised uh, about $7 million to make a movie. Um, they threw it together remarkably fast because here we are only a year later and it was just delivered to us. Um and uh, I'm interested to hear what you thought of it. There's a couple different aspects that we should talk about. We should talk about like it as a movie, it as the fulfillment of a Kickstarter project, and also we should probably talk, because it's gotten a lot of attention, about kind of the digital distribution and how that all kind of worked out and, and uh, in many cases not for people. Um, right. So I'm, well, I'm not quite sure where we should start. I mean, I, th- I can't, it's hard for me to remember. Maybe I, sh- I should have – I really should have gone back and looked at what we – talked about last year about mm-hmm. this but i mean it's really interesting and just in that uh warner brothers uh still kind of owns the the ip rights mm-hmm. and so they told i believe they told rob thomas if he can get like if he f- gets the funding for all of the production they would handle all of the distribution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they would allow obviously and they would obviously allow him to do whatever with this intellectual property yeah yeah which is honestly pretty generous for um a corporation like that yeah and it's something that he never would have gotten if he hadn't done this kickstarter campaign because like you know he would have had to make a movie for america instead of a movie for kickstarter fans mm-hmm. um, let, let's talk about it kind of as a movie first and then we can move into kind of the meta stuff about um you know the the funding and the distribution and stuff like that um what did you think of it just like as a movie as an experience as a you know as a veronica mars fan what did you think of the film itself i mean it's like you you watch this movie and it's very clear that it is a movie for fans Mm -hmm. it's almost like really well-written veronica mars fan fiction Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which uh, to be fair i like really enjoyed like i really kind of loved it was, it was so much fun to like see these characters again, like get exactly. back in this world, like you know, it it was it was kind of a blast. Um, so, but I mean, so much of this movie was like just pure fan service. There, <laughs> <laughs> like you see, like they they did an, an incredible job bringing back like every character that you could kind of want to see again, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and realistically if you look if like you are an outsider looking at this plot you'd be like why is this character in this one scene it seems really superfluous Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but it because as a fan you're like yeah uh, you know i've waited god what has it been like eight years or something Mm -hmm. a long time yeah and you want to see these people come back and you want to see where they've been and how they've changed and stuff like that um you know what I thought was really interesting was they did a great job working all the characters in there. Um, you know, it's nice to it's great to see Dick Casablancas again. It's great to see Weevil and you know even uh, I forget the name of the uh, deputy. Um, that was one of my favorite scenes when she goes to visit the deputy who's played by the guy from New Girl. Oh, um, deputy Le- Leo. Leo, yeah, Leo. Um, Leo Damato, yeah. Yes. Um, so that was that was fantastic. Um, the uh, 
the uh, thing that I thought was interesting was not just that they did such a good job bringing back these characters, but that they did a good job of making it feel like Veronica Mars, the TV show, and touching on all the same themes that Veronica Mars always did. It's like Veronica Mars was really obsessed with class and with kind of like class clashes between class, and, and I think we saw a lot of that in this film. It's really obsessed with like the kind of sordid life of the one percenters. Um, we saw a lot of that in this film. It was really obsessed with like the corrupting power of police organizations and kind of how, uh, you know, the skills that it takes to get you. It, it was weirdly obsessed with how the skills that it takes to get elected sheriff are not necessarily at the skills that it takes to be a good sheriff. Right. Um, and this is kind of a, also obsessed with those same things. Um, so it's just really fascinating that, you know, not only was it like a Veronica Mars reunion in terms of the cast, but it was also like a Veronica Mars reunion in terms of like the thematic underpinnings of the show, which is probably the, my favorite thing about the movie. Um, you know, the mystery itself, like, you know, that she's trying to solve, it's interesting. It's not super compelling and, um, you know, it, 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 it keeps the plot moving, which is good, but it's, it's definitely not the thing that you were most interested in as you watch the film. Um, but the no, the it, setting it, and stuff like that is fantastic. And maybe the the least interesting part of the movie. Yeah, well, because honestly, <laughs> it involves a lot of characters who you only kind of remember. Like I'm a pretty diehard Veronica Mars fan, and even I was kind of like, who are these? Who? What name did she just say? And then I go back, and it's like some someone who's in one episode or two episodes in 2005, you know, like you know, season two or something like that. Um, but. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to see Veronica kind of get back to her old roots as a as a private detective, and uh, kind of act like she did in high school. And also funny to see the the actual consequences of what happens when you try to do that and you're 30 years old. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought that just from a movie standpoint, it was it was pretty fantastic. The writing was still great. Um, it was I a, think the writing was mostly great which is on par with how the tv show is yeah there are still there are definitely lines that sound really bad and like out of place Mm -hmm. which reminded me of um some of the poor lines in some of like the earlier and the later episodes Mm. for some reason I, i have like season two on this kind of weird high and the the back half of season one on this high pedestal mm-hmm. of the the best of the series. What lines from the film are you thinking of? It's just like a really awkward plug for Budweiser and Bud Light, <laughs> which reminded me of the really awkward plug for the Shins. Oh uh, yeah, there was some in like episode three or four or something. It was something where like she was like, "I love this song," and then like they just kind of like listen to the song for like thirty five seconds, and you're like, "Why?" And you're like, this, 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 <laughs> "This is really awkward. <laughs> this should not be here." Really, I just wish they spent more time at the uh, reunion. Um, yeah, I thought the reunion was was nice. I liked that it ended in a giant all out brawl. Oh, I did too. Um, and the fire alarm going off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very um, fitting. But I mean, I just I think that's what I think that's what I, I at least was expecting more of the movie to be about. Actually, like set at the reunion itself. I, the the after party turned out to be much more uh, much more key than the actual the thing, you know thing itself. Um, right. 
Yeah, I thought the I thought the writing was mostly strong. I didn't notice any clunker of lines like you did. Um, I did notice like what I thought was like kind of a weird plot decision, which is that like if you were under the suspicion of taking of, of killing your girlfriend, is there any way you would go anywhere with someone who looks exactly like your girlfriend? <laughs> like when he takes her to that club, I was like, are you kidding me? All the headlines are going to be. You know, Logan Eccles takes girlfriend, in, you know, uh, what do you call it? Uh, girlfriend. Impersonator. Stalker. Impersonator, yeah. sure. Like, that is just ridiculously creepy. But I thought But overall, to be fair, Logan is used to uh, being the butt of true terrible headlines. True. Remember, he used, to, he used to organize bum fights. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was watching this movie. I was like, this is a very redemptive story for a guy who used to organize bum fights. Yeah, now he's like... Like flying planes, <laughs> in the in the Marines or something. I, oh, I, saw, I also thought there were a, a number of slightly awkward celebrity cameos. Like, uh, did not know that they needed to really like work Ira Glass in there, um, and, and definitely not James Franco. Oh yeah, I I mean, like yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was fun, but it just was like it kind of it kind of detracted from the actual like storyline of the movie that she could just go and see james franco for no reason ira glass wasn't that bad because it was kind of like that was like a second yeah and you're like okay whatever james franco was a little <laughs> seemed a little gratuitous like maybe they're buds or something and so yeah, they, maybe he was just like oh i want to be in this movie yeah well, that can, seems like something he would do just like oh i want to be in this movie yeah that's true um so I, I liked it from a from a plot standpoint. I thought the um, love triangle was quite well done. Um, uh, I it, meh didn't 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 do it for you. No, but it like it it felt like what did what did Piz do? But no, one, I don't think were you a Piz fan because I don't think anyone was. I, I actually like kind of forgot that Piz existed because I do not watch season three very often. Because season um, three is not very good. But I was a fan of him in this movie, and I thought they did a good job of making him kind of like long suffering, but also they did. But I, th- I mean, I think like as far as like Veronica Mars goes, like mm-hmm. he, he, it really seemed like he had no impact. Yeah, yeah. Because she kind of like completely blew him off, and he was heartbroken. And she didn't really take it as hard yeah i i think the real problem was that there was a mismatch in the degree to which each of them was invested in their relationship which is a you know always a problem in yeah relationship well because you know like 90 percent, if not more of the people are just want to see veronica and logan together yeah yeah and I, I, oh sorry go ahead. no i mean it's just like this weird way to create tension i guess i've never really been on team logan so i was like not i was i was kind of rooting for Piz throughout the film but you know, I understood why why that didn't quite happen. I mean, I'm in the very small minority that still misses Duncan Kane. I was surprised that he was like the biggest profile non-entity in this film. Like, even his mom got to come back and Duncan didn't get to come back. Right. Um, well, you know, he's like a fugitive. Oh, yeah. He's like in Australia, like hiding from the law. Like, I forgot he, about that. He literally kidnapped a baby. Well, his baby. Yeah probably a really good idea that they didn't find some super awkward way to try to shoehorn him back in then he's wearing a fake beard yeah at the reunion um there was a great uh video series on do you read the daily dish it's andrew sullivan's 
kind of news mm. blog thing. Not really, but um, it was a great uh, series on there about it was. It, he does a series where he like ask blank anything, so it'll be like you know ask some celebrity something, and they're like video uh, clips of his readers submit uh, questions, and then somebody answers it on camera. Um, and so Rob Thomas answered eight, eight or ten questions or something over the course of the week that the Kickstarter came out. Um, most of them were meta things about, you know, the funding and distribution and Kickstarter and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're all interesting, and he comes off as a super likable and charming dude. Um, but uh, one of them, they asked him what were his uh, least favorite kind of TV tropes or, or things that he tries to avoid in his own writing. Um, and he mentioned that he hates the uh, clearly bad choice in uh, Love Triangles, where you know you you have the clearly good choice that the audience just loves and roots for, and then the clearly bad choice who's like a total schmuck or um, you know just otherwise not sexy or not desirable or you know not not whatever is the uh, is the preferred uh, trait, um, and so the audience can't figure out why this person would possibly want to be with this horrible human being instead of the the good one. He says he always tries to make the love triangles difficult. Um, to figure out, you know, which one is the right choice or which one sh- the person should end up with. Um, and so I, I really kind of think that uh, this was probably pretty high on his mind when he was talking about that because it, it's true that it is a, a tough choice for Veronica between Piz and, and Logan, and I think that's kind of how it should be. So, uh, yeah, the, anyway, yeah, he doesn't like the clearly bad choice. And I, and I, I got that here, and I liked that in this love triangle. So it, it kind of worked for me, but... Um, and you, you kind of knew from the beginning, again, from a meta level, that she was going to end up with Logan. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's not because Piz is the bad choice. Yeah. But it's just because... He's less interesting. Yeah, I mean, he was brought... <laughs> he, was, he was a new character in Season 3, which... Oh, you know who wasn't here either is um that other new character from Season 3. Um, Max Roommate... Oh uh, yeah. Remember her? Like kind of. Season three overall was very weak and they brought in these two new characters and I don't think I just think you have to be a really awesome character for mm. fans of a show to like you if mm. you're being brought in this late. Yeah. Yeah. Well especially if you're kind of like replacing other characters. And they I just, and I mean I just feel like they didn't they were sort of very bland, both of them. And in fact, even in this movie, Piz is still pretty bland. Yeah, I mean, he works as like a public radio producer and, you know, he's got yes. parents. That's all I know about him. Bland. He's yeah, a sexual public... sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, no, that, that, that also, that line actually felt really weird to me, the sharknado line. I thought it was funny, but it's also the kind of line that's going to be totally forgotten about, like, Almost already, but definitely in like a year or two when you watch this movie. I mean, it was kind of funny, but like at the same time, um, there were a lot of lines in the original series. I can't, I mean, I should rewatch it, but that felt really like pop culturally witty. Mm-hmm. And this scene felt like a parody of itself. Well, maybe this is a good time for us to talk about the kind of meta aspect of this because the one c- criticism that I have seen of the movie usually by people who freely admit to liking the film. Um, but I saw this both from James Ponziwick at Time Magazine and also uh, from 
Scott Tobias at The Dissolve. So we'll we'll link to those uh, essays in the show notes. But the basic gist of both arguments is that um, because Rob Thomas was beholden to the fans when making these films and not to, you know, like studio executives or random audiences of, you know, uh, test screeners and stuff like that, um, that he felt obliged to kind of put in these fan servicey things and that it made for a movie that, if it's not exactly worse, especially for people who enjoy the series, it's at least kind of um, flawed as a standalone film. I don't know what this movie plays like to somebody who doesn't watch any Veronica Mars, but I'm almost positive it plays very badly. Um, I, I would agree to that. I'm very I'm very curious um, to how people new to the franchise handle yeah. the film but i just i don't i don't know anyone that everyone i know that saw it was obviously excited to see it because they're a fan of the series yeah so it's really kind of tough to say you know it, i guess it depends on kind of like what the point of making the film was and i think if you would ask rob thomas he would say that especially because they took money from the kickstarter backers and they're the ones who kind of dictated the content of the film he didn't get any notes from the executives i'm sure because they're only covering distribution and stuff like that um, you know, he he might say that you know he felt obligated to put some of this stuff in, and and in a way that he might not have. I think a good, um, you, you know, point of comparison is uh, Firefly Serenity, which again, right. you know, had a, a extremely devoted fan base um, and a, a movie. But you know, Firefly fans didn't fund Serenity, uh, and if they had, I wonder if you know it would have been Badger instead of Fanti and Mingo, who they went to meet with at the bar. And whether, you know, it would have been Saffron somehow instead of Mr. Universe and whether it would have been Jubal Early instead of the operative. So that, you know, that you, I guess the point is whether, you know, do you want to expand it into something totally new or do you want to, like, keep, um, you, you know, keep all the fan stuff in there for, for people to like? And I think this is an extremely effective uh, continuation of the Veronica Mars TV show. Um, I think it's probably not a very effective at all uh uh, hook into the series for anyone who doesn't watch the TV show. Um, so I think it's exactly what they wanted to make, but I think it's a good question about whether or not it's what, um, you know, kind of the best thing for Veronica Mars or, or whether it's the best Veronica Mars movie that could exist. Right. Um, you know, I would, I would even say that I think all of the fan service, as much as I love it, almost assuredly makes it a weaker movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think it does, and actually what what I also think makes it a weaker movie is that it leads very strongly to um the continuing book franchise that they're going to start. That's really fascinating, and I, I kind of wondered whether this was a backdoor pilot, considering that at the end it does kind of set it up. You know, the the end of this movie you could easily see a sequel coming from this where, you know, she's kind of back in the saddle in Neptune, Weevil's back on his bike. Um, kind of getting Weevil back on the bike seems like the only point to that whole plot point in the film, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, it kind of, it more highlights the, the, like, class distinction uh, of Celeste Kane and the O-Niners versus... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm the poorer parts of Neptune and then the corruption of the police. But I mean, it really, I really think that whole subplot was only to drive, um, threads for people to want to read the books. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, put more Weevil in the movie. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, which is totally going to work. Like I'm going I'm probably going to read the Veronica Mars books. Like, you know, because I really like this movie. <laughs> so, you know, if if their point is to like continue deepening the experience for Veronica Mars fans, you know, they're doing a great job. But um I don't know. It's a it's a really interesting question. I I think it only really becomes a relevant question if this ends up happening more and more and more and more. So, if we're looking at, you know, a kickstarted another X-Files movie and another kickstarted Farscape movie and all that kind of stuff. Um you know, it's oh, going to wow. be Farscape. It's going to be an open question about whether or not these, uh, you know, um, whether they succeed as movies or whether, you know, that they're the best versions of them that could exist. Like maybe being beholden to all of America isn't such a bad thing because it makes you make a more accessible movie. Though on the other hand, maybe it's better that this movie isn't accessible. I don't know. It's you can go back. Yeah, and I mean, for hours. There are pros and cons. Yeah. I, I don't really have a big problem with it being super fan servicey because no. I'm a fan. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I really enjoyed it, and it made me happy. And uh, it's opening at my public theater, and I might be one of the like probably like six people who's going to go see it. So. I was kind of frustrated that they were like you know, like midnight premiere in new york's in in new york and i was like actually no this is in the mall in jersey <laughs> I, didn't know that. I looked up the theater i'm like oh this is in wait where is this jersey ah uh, never mind <laughs> ryan's like i'm not going to jersey at midnight you kidding me <laughs> i don't go to jersey in the day <laughs> uh yeah <clears throat> do we want to talk about the because the, the digital distribution aspect has gotten quite a lot of negative press i would say uh, we can. Um, did you try it? I, I am like one of the weird person people for whom this worked one hundred percent perfectly. Interesting. Um, so I am like. Well, the... you also you also tried it like uh, the weekend after, like like right like Monday or something. Yeah. So I'm like I'm like the the, the test case that WB should be holding up for how this is supposed to work. Um, so what's really confusing here is that there's a couple oh. different um, like. Uh, uh, content uh, rights management stuff um what do you call those things D- uh, drms uh, yeah. digital rights management stuff going on here and in the the movie is stored in something called ultraviolet and then you watch it through whatever app you want to and ultraviolet comes with a lot of blu-ray dvds and it's not a like fundamentally flawed concept it's basically saying like no matter what studio this comes from or whatever service you want to watch this on like here are the movies that you own it's basically like a database of the movies i own um, so every once in a while when I get a Blu-ray DVD and I pop it in, it says, hey, do you want to add this to your Ultraviolet account? And I say, sure. So, oh, so you already had an Ultraviolet account. Exactly. So okay. the Flickster front end that you were, quote-unquote, supposed to use to watch the Veronica Mars movie connects to Ultraviolet to see what movies you own. Um, and Flickster is owned by WB, so that's why WB was pushing Flickster. But you don't have to watch your Ultraviolet content just through that one device you can watch it through anything that uses ultraviolet as the back end so when i got the email i clicked on the thing and went to the flickster page i did have to make a flickster account which kind of pissed me off but then once i entered my access code it added it to my ultraviolet library and then i have a smart tv like which has like apps and stuff on it and smart tvs get a lot of shit but for some reason i bought like the one awesome one 
Um, and the apps on it are super useful. I watch them. I use them for watching uh, Amazon Prime Instant streaming stuff most of the time. But this time, I opened up the Vudu app, which is a, another like rental, you know, movie sale service that I've never used before. But which also again connects to Ultraviolet to figure out what movies you own. And it said, you know, one new movie added Veronica Mars movie. Would you like to watch this in HD? And I said yes, and I got to watch it in HD on my television. So. For me, it worked absolutely perfectly. For other people who either don't understand or don't have a uh, ultraviolet-compatible front-end player for this, it must have been an insanely frustrating experience because you have to watch it through Flickster, which sucks. You can't get it on your Apple TV. You can't get it on your you know, Blu-ray player. or There's all kinds of things about it that are really, really horrible. Um, and uh, that seemed like the boat where more people ended up, sadly. like More people did not really understand what was happening, why they had to create so many accounts, or how to just watch the effing movie already. I, I just, I'm looking at my Blu-ray player now and I realized I probably could have done Ultraviolet through my Blu-ray player if I mm-hmm. turned it on. Almost and, everyone uh, can do Ultraviolet through the Blu-ray player because Blu-ray movies really frequently come with Ultraviolet versions of, of the but film. But no one uses them. But no one uses it. We've talked about this before, how like I don't want to pay more for the digital version of the same movie, but in this instance, it did actually work pretty well. Uh, um, see, my experience was what I think a lot of people experienced, which was on Friday after work, I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch the Veronica Mars movie. I have my download code, like, no problem. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I have to register for Flickster, whatever, do that, put in my code. Oh, it has to link to an ultraviolet account, which it all, I also have to create. Mm. Okay, I'll do that. They are now linked. Um, and then I'd heard some people who already had one or the other but didn't remember their old passwords, had trouble linking them, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But anyways, I was like, okay, so now I'm like, you know, download movie. And it's like, oh, you need the Flickster desktop app. <laughs> that like, sucks. Like, what? Uh, okay. And so I was like, try and download it and it's like it was like a 35 megabyte install file or mm-hmm. something something small like mm-hmm. i was like okay and i look at chrome and it's like 0.1 megabytes downloaded you know estimated time like 35 minutes i'm like what it was... <laughs> <laughs> i was like maybe maybe there's a problem with my connection like i reset my wi-fi something like nope i think the servers were probably getting hammered by people exactly like me who have never used Flickster, never used Ultraviolet, trying to set this stuff up. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, um, well, I can go do something else. I'll be patient. Um, so I just let it down in the background. I, I don't know, watched, I think, like Parks and Rec mm-hmm. while I made dinner. And I was like, okay, you know, done, installs, like, error message. What is this? Go look online. Everyone else is having this error message. Someone has the uncorrupted file version. I download that. Mm-hmm. Um, from from you know not from Flickster but from their private server. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an error installing it, so at that point <laughs> I gave up. <laughs> and you probably like pirated the movie. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that's what mo- a lot of people end up doing. Because the thing is that like even re- even pretty tech savvy people like it was just not possible. To- and Flickster and is probably the worst front end to watch any of these. Like I didn't watch it through Flickster. I watched it through Voodoo, which is you know at least reasonably competent at like the actual active streaming content to your devices um but flix is owned by wb and so is veronica mars so 
that's where they went with it. So I mean, there was such a backlash that they sent out an email saying, "We've heard your complaints. We're if you're having problems, call customer support. We'll yeah. try and set up a way to get it through iTunes or Amazon or something, whatever you prefer." Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't try that, but so I don't know what the hassle would be to do that is. Yeah, but it was nice of them to offer. Yeah, it was it was nice of them to offer. I mean, you know, it, it was, but I mean, like the it's just always like, are they being nice? Are they, you know, how much is it them being nice? How much is it them, like putting out fires, co- covering up uh, like the PR disaster that it is? Yeah, yeah, and like the thing is that like honestly, like that was nowhere near Rob Thomas's or probably anyone involved with the Kickstarter's no, decision. Obviously not. I'm yeah. sure if if he could, Rob Thomas would just like. Let's just email it to, it to the that. email. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think it was, I think WB slash Flickster should have expected more problems and or like stress tested their systems better mm-hmm. because because if this worked smoothly, I think more people it could have been a good way to get people to use Flickster. Yeah. Not me, but yeah, other people. Other people. <laughs> people who don't know how to get these things other ways. Um, yeah. Anyway, it was a, it was kind of a clusterfuck, but at least for me, it worked totally perfectly. So if I get a call from a reporter like tomorrow, who's like, "Hey, I hear the Veronica Mars thing worked totally perfectly from you," like <laughs> we need that we need that opinion because no one else but in the see, whole but world you didn't use flickster so yeah, but i didn't use flickster exactly <laughs> <laughs> so the whole point is flickster is a piece of trash From the dusty i don't think we have too much to say we don't have to do like a whole thing about your detective we just it just finished recently so i thought we should talk about it a little bit um I think it's interesting. True Detective, obviously, the HBO uh, kind of police procedural um, starring Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson um, that just finished its eight-episode run. Um, is it is it a police procedural? I guess so. Crime story. I mean, yeah, it's more. Yeah, it's yeah. like a it's like a noir esque. Yeah, yeah. Like a, like psychodrama a, or something. Yeah, because it, yeah. it's it's more yeah. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting because I know that you mainlined the whole series in a weekend. Yeah. Whereas I watched it week by week, and uh, it kind of, um, it, you know, as it's as it as it went along. And I'm I'm I guess what I'm mostly curious to find out is what your overall impressions of the series were, and how they changed over the 26 hours in which you consumed it, and how those compared to my impressions of the series, and how they changed over the eight or 10 or whatever weeks that I consumed it. Um, so I guess I'm curious, what did you think of the series overall? I enjoyed it, although I do like uh, these noir-esque things. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved L.A. Confidential and Chinatown and, I don't know, Seven, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I liked the the setup of, like, the two, and then I actually really, like, three mm-hmm. timelines. Mm-hmm. The acting was strong. They did a great job with, uh, especially Matthew McConaughey's costume and makeup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love his like future, like giant 
stash and and ponytail and everything. Uh, it was really hilarious. It, they did a good job aging him throughout the years, and Woody Harrelson too, even though that mostly just consisted of like strapping a little belly on him. I think so. Like you know, I watched this pretty slowly um, over the course of eight or, or ten weeks, as I said. Um, and for the first, I think, four episodes, I was like, this is one of the best TV shows, if not the best TV show ever made. Like, I, I kind of, like, fell head over heels for this. Um, and it just kind of seemed like they could really do no wrong. And, and it all kind of culminated in, I forget whether it was season, I'm sorry, episode four, episode five, when they had the long tracking shot um, where they kind of went to that uh, neighborhood and, and had to escape you know, over the through the through the projects like over a fence and all that. Oh kind of stuff. yeah, where he he's the bite like the undercover. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Bite. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it was the end of end of episode four, um, and uh, like up until that, or maybe the next episode, which is episode five, where they kind of figured out you know the Reggie Ledoux aspect of it and kind of turned that narrative corner. Um, I thought that this was among the best, if not the best, TV shows ever made. Um, and then the last three episodes, like, eh, it didn't quite resonate with me the same way, and it and it kind of bummed me out. Um, one thing that you might not have gotten um, from the the way that you watched it is that, like, the internet, like, kind of freaked out about this, um, especially since they there were all these suggestions that there was something uh, kind of spiritual or supernatural going on a lot of references to a yellow king and carcosa and stuff like this um and a lot of people kind of fell down the rabbit hole and trying to chase down what those mean and they rewatched old episodes obsessively and looked for clues in the production design and stuff on the wall and posted them on the subreddit and kind of and that that was me like i mm. <laughs> was this person <laughs> you know went back and bought the book from that all of this stuff was based on which is called i think just the yellow king it's like under public domain now um and it started like the whole it's like the start of the whole hp lovecraft mythos uh the king in yellow by robert chambers um and uh briefly sent the book to like number one on the amazon like digital download list (laughs) um so it, it turns out that the way that I was watching the show, the way a lot of people um, were watching the show, um, was the wrong way to watch the show. Like, um, the creator, Nick uh, Pizzolato, he, he's a novelist and he wrote all the episodes. Um, and he came out near the end and kind of said, like, hey, everybody who's, like, digging for deeper theories and who expects this to be, like, some kind of, like, you know, Shyamalan-esque crazy mind fuck of a last episode like you're probably gonna be disappointed because what he was always interested in was the interplay between these two cops um and kind of like building a psychological profile of these two individuals and he was not interested in telling a story about you know satanic cults or whatever the the mystery that they were ostensibly trying to solve um was never was never quite the point and so um the last episode was a a little bit rough for those of us who were hoping for something truly truly crazy and did not validate any of the fan uh theories that had been tossed around like literally i think like zero of them (laughs) (laughs) well i mean and i will agree like i think 
Um, the first half is a lot stronger than the last half, mm-hmm. and um, and I think like the the conclusion kind of falls flat. Yeah, it it is just kind of a. It was disappointing after being told that this was like a a giant conspiracy that involved all these people to find out that it's like mostly just this creepy incestuous redneck hick dude who lives in the swamps who just happens to be related to yeah exactly like you know you thought it was going to be something truly mind-blowing and instead it's just like that one creepy episode of the x-files yeah like it was that episode is still you know a great gripping piece of television and the performances again even by ancillary characters or character actors are amazing and the production design on the creepy labyrinth fort thing that they descend into is, is awesome. So everything about it is like still as well executed as everything else. It's just it it kind of I feel like you got to the end of the central mystery and we're like, oh, that's it, you know? Like that that's that's all this was just some creepy lawnmower dude. <laughs> Um, Spoilers. <laughs> so sorry. That's <laughs> it's, fine. It's it's yeah. It's yeah. Inevitable. Yeah. I, is it, is it also wrong that I felt like it would have been a lot more powerful if they both just died in there with him with the killer? Yeah. I mean, it it, it I I certainly thought that was going to happen. So I guess they did a really good job of of uh, of bringing it through. And I couldn't... I keep going back and forth on whether McConaughey's character, whether his, like, spiritual conversion at the end is, like, earned or whether it's convenient. You know? Yeah, it, it, to me, it felt hokey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't, didn't quite make... Because the problem is that the character that you catch up to in 2012, like, you only kind of know that person at this point. Like, you know the 1995 Rust, and you know a little bit of 2004 Rust, and you've seen all the briefing scenes of modern-day Rust, but, like, you don't spend that much time with modern-day Rust before no. the end of this episode. And I think that's that's another big part of the problem with the last half, is that it spends so much more time in 2012, mm-hmm. whereas you spent, like, whereas, like, all of the character development is in this 1995 setting were for good reason. They were very different people. Yeah. Yeah. I almost wonder whether the show is like a little bit of a product or, or a victim of its own success where like, I don't really think that HBO thought that it was going to have this huge internet sensation on its hands. I think that they thought that there was going to be a, you know, a, critically acclaimed HBO miniseries that almost no one watched and maybe they got some DVD sales and stuff like that. Like, I'm not sure, and, and I'm not sure that that uh, Pizzolatto, the, the creator, was prepared for, like, what would happen if, like, people didn't just like this, but they, like, loved it and, like, wanted to... Like, there were people on the subreddit who literally, like, spent every night between each episode obsessively re-watching the old episodes Oof. to find you know, the clues that were hidden in the middle. So by the time the eighth episode rolls around, they've seen the first, the pilot, you know, <laughs> 12 times. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. So I, w- I will say, um, I think the pilot mm-hmm. is really well done, but I think it's really hard to handle, um, like, the split timeline mm-hmm. and then also, like, 
while they're talking about 1995, they're doing like the introduction to the case and then that dinner party back and forth, mm-hmm. which I think is it's some it's seemed unnecessarily difficult. Yeah, kind of kind of to try and like absorb everything at once. Yeah. I did really like learning about the rules of how, and I think maybe it's one of the reasons that the series sagged a little bit once it didn't have that interplay to cut between. You know, once the once the interviews ended, like you didn't have that same natural rhythm that you had through those first episodes, where like at any point you could just flash back to modern day to get context or commentary on what's happened. Um, and you also didn't have this really really fascinating tension that developed especially in the Reggie Ledoux episode where um, you get to realize like really and truly that these guys are not re- reliable narrators at all. That in fact they are oh. actively lying about everything that's happening um, yeah. and have been for a very long time. Um, so it, like that was, it, it was just such a natural driver of the rhythms of the episode that when they do catch up, um, it uh, just kind of rocked. The last two episodes are like a little bit strange, um, in in that they lost they lost that driving force. So I don't know. It it was it was interesting. It w- it's certainly interesting too to me because of the way that it was filmed, almost as kind of like one long movie. Like it's written by one dude, Nick Pizzolatto, and it's directed by one dude, Kerry Fukunaga. So like it's really kind of almost. Not auteur, because it would only be auteur if one person wrote and directed it. But, like, it's the product of a relatively small uh, number of people's vision, considering that it's a television show, which is almost never, you know, even if it's got the same creators, they bring in different writers or directors or stuff like that. Um, And, uh, I don't know, it was extremely coherent as as a series. Um, side note, like, just a question. Is there a reason, um, explained why the killings, um, stopped and then started, uh, was it like the 17 years later? No. And as far as I can tell, there was never a good explanation given for why they made such a public demonstration out of two of them but then the rest they just put into their creepy maze yeah well i mean like the first one kind of made sense like he was escalating right yeah Came brazen and then but then he didn't get caught so you'd think he'd escalate even more yeah yeah no did not happen okay which i think was actually probably a good thing from the show's perspective because it turned it from it kept it from just turning into Hannibal um, okay yeah which has like basically Hannibal is like a weekly exercise in like how fucked up of a murder scene can we create like it production wise um, but they never gave a good reason for it which is disappointing yeah a lot of people said it was like a uh, like a warning because the first girl who died uh, was that Fontenot, or was she like the disappeared oh, person? The very, like the very first girl that the, died, or the first girl in the pilot? I can't remember whether it, somebody like mentioned it was mentioned that they were like ostracized because they talked about something, you know, like they uh, 
talked about the abuse that they got at one of the schools or something like that. And so there was like theories that maybe they made an example out of this particular person. So as to scare the other kids who went to the school, like don't talk about what happened to you or whatever. Okay. But so no, I'm not that, sure yeah, that ever that, panned out. That was like the girl Fontenot that went missing earlier than the body they found with that. Oh, right. Right. Because the, the one that they find in the beginning of the show with antlers is like a prostitute. Yeah, that's that's right. Who was the girlfriend of that cellmate mm-hmm. of... See, yeah, again, that's why I feel like like <laughs> the back the back half of this series, like, just... And I mean, if he said, like, his goal wasn't to create this, like, elaborate conspiracy, like, murder cult thing, that's fine. And he wanted to explore the interplay between these two very flawed individuals like certainly accomplished that but it left a lot of threads kind of as someone who likes these sort of mysteries which is i think why we watch like shitty shows like lost yeah i I, you know i think that the thing is that he really for for everything that that bizzolato has said he really wanted to like have his cake and eat it too like he, he didn't want to have to deliver on the premise of the crazy murder cult stuff, but he did want to use the trappings of it, and he did want to have these creepy like stick things everywhere, and he did want to like have all these people talk about their made up mythologies and stuff like that. But like, no, 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 no. Like this isn't about that. This is about something. This is about these two detective guys, and let's talk about them for a while. But like, oh, but look at this creepy like, uh, you know, this uh, weird tent revival church thing has like a person who falls at around who's like you know got something weird you know and it does that with all kinds of things actually like at some point the series kind of came under fire for its portrayal of women especially um uh cole's uh i'm sorry not cole's hearts uh woody harrelson's character's girlfriend um who oh the the like the stenographer yeah, it, it, people were kind of like, there was a, an article in New Yorker and a couple other places of people saying, you know, like, there's lots of gratuitous nudity and these characters don't have any depth and and stuff like that. And, like, Pizzolatto basically came out and said that he was, like, satirizing how those kinds of characters are usually portrayed in these kinds of works or something like that. And it's like, yeah, okay, like, you can do that, but at the same time, like, you're also getting... You're, you're you're like playing off of the same kinds of benefits that those shows typically get you know what i mean like you're you're having your cake and eat it too you you put the the topless uh girl in the show and then you like you know appeal to the people who watch shows primarily on how many topless women there are and then you get to turn around and say oh no 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 no, no. like this is you know satirizing other shows that use those topless women like we're not doing that like it's you know it, it tries to have its cake and eat it too in a lot of different right. places. I mean, it's it's sort of like um, crap. What's it called? Pose law, mm. which is basically like without outright stating it, it's you can't observe if it's an actual parody or if it's just like the act, like seriously being a mm-hmm. fundamentally what yeah. it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and I think, but I think that this show like intentionally walked the line, you know, like they they intentionally left out the winking smiley so that they could play both sides of the of the game. So, anyway, um, uh, it's a it's a really fascinating show. 
I'd recommend it to just about everyone, even though I just spoiled the end of it. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm curious to know, because I know that, you know, people, like, uh, bars started doing, you know, True Detective watching nights, and I think a couple friends of ours watched it too, and I would be interested to hear what, what anyone's thoughts were at the end of it if you want to send us an email or something. Sure. And again, I mean, I think a lot of the the carry of this show is the interplay in the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and the truly spectacular performances. Uh, oh, yeah. Mostly by McConaughey, who is, like, on a tear, um, but also by, by Woody Harrelson, who does a really good job, and actually almost every other uh, actor down the line um, is, is really fantastic in their roles. Fukunaga, actually, the, the director who directed all eight episodes and... Um, did a remarkable job giving it kind of a cinematic look to the whole thing. I've been following his career for like a weirdly long time because he came to NYU to screen a short film that he made called Victoria Palacino and talk about it with the the Tisch film students in 2005, freshman year of college. Um it's a great short film and then he directed a really really great film called Sin Nombre uh, also in Spanish. Um, in 2009. Um, so I've kind of been keeping up with his career for a while, and now he's kind of exploded. But uh, Oh, interesting. He's been doing good stuff for a long time. Father's Japanese, mother is Swedish, lived in France and Japan. Yeah, his Graduate background is... Santa Cruz. Crazy. Yeah. I just remember <clears throat> when he came to NYU, I just remember thinking, like, there's no way I will ever be as cool as this dude. It was like a very <laughs> awe-inspiring person at that point. Anyway, anything else about you, Detective? Mm. I don't think so. I mean, it's... There's... Well... There wasn't that much to it, right? Because it's only eight episodes. I think it's really fascinating that it's going to come back in its second season as a thematically, but not plot or character linked so it could be any like american horror story any setting any characters anything but same two dudes uh fukunaga and uh lotto so i will be happily watching i mean it's what heroes originally wanted to do i believe Mm -hmm. except that i think hbo's actually got the balls that nbc never had right well and it's it would probably be a lot harder to get Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. Very true. To stick around again. Yeah. I mean, not unheard of, but yeah, it's probably easier to keep smaller actors on TV salaries. I just thought it was so such an interesting topic to pair with Veronica Mars because both of them have this kind of struggle between like the relationship between like a fandom and a creator. Like, what does the creator owe the fandom? You know, if if the fans got to control the finished product, like, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? And it's just really fascinating. It, of course, with Veronica Mars, like, the fans knew what they were getting and paid for it before they actually made the thing, whereas, you know, all eight episodes of True Detective were shot and kind of in the can before any of them started airing and before anyone freaked out and went nuts. But still, it's it's just still fascinating to think about. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Rob Thomas would have made 
the same exact film if the fans didn't pay for it. Yeah, that's true. He did seem like he was just as excited as anyone else to be back among these people. Yeah. Yeah. From the acclaimed director of The Wedding Banquet, the Samuel Goldwyn Company presents Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. The story of three sisters looking for a recipe for romance and their father, one of the world's great chefs, trying to understand the ingredients. In this family, if you can't cope, you can always cook. So, uh, we watched a kind of a weird, what, what may seem like a weird choice this week. It was Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, which is Ang Lee's... Uh, Chinese language film um, from 1994, I think. 1993. Yes. Um, and then we also watched Tortilla Soup, which is an English language remake uh, about a Hispanic family. The original is about a, a, a Chinese family or a, a Taiwanese uh, father and his three daughters. Um, and the newer one, Torti- Tortilla Soup, is about a kind of a Latino parent and his three daughters living in Los Angeles. Um, I did not know anything about this movie whatsoever before we watched it, which is always kind of a fun uh, way to go into a movie. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't know anything about it. Um, And I would say that I found Eat, Drink, Man, Woman to be a thoroughly charming film that I would recommend to just about anyone, and I really loved watching, and Tortilla Soup to be pretty bad. That's my <laughs> that's my TLDR. <laughs> um, so if you get to this point in the podcast and you're like, why are Kyle and Ryan talking about this movie? My recommendation would be pause the podcast, go rent Eat, Drink, Man, Woman on iTunes, watch it and be charmed, and then come back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Don't watch Tortilla Soup, just watch a shit on it. At least unless you have a vastly different opinion, Ryan. Uh, no, I agree. And that's a big reason why I... I pushed for this choice in mm-hmm. our thing because I knew Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was a great film. I mean, it was Ang Lee's kind of big break, I think. Mm-hmm. And I had not even heard of Tortilla Soup before. I had looked at a list of like movie like remakes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, look at this. I've never heard of this movie. It must be horrible. <laughs> we should have this as an example of... You what know, not to do. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. when... Like, we've had bad remakes before, notably Godzilla, mm-hmm. but, um, like, that was big and noticeable. This was completely silent. And it's not like Tortilla Soup was, it didn't, like, it has, like, a reasonable cast, Hector Elizondo, mm-hmm. um, Raquel Welsh, mm-hmm. like, they're big names. Oh, I thought it was really funny that... Um, Ken Marino. Oh my god, I couldn't one. take Ken Marino at all. <laughs> Especially since I just watched Veronica Mars the day before. I was like, Ken Marino, I, you cannot be in this fucking movie right now. <laughs> I, I was like, wait, is that... No, that that is not... Video. Oh my god. <laughs> that was extremely uh, fortuitous uh, casting right there. It's like his fourth uh, credited role or something. It's really early in his career. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but I also, I sorry, okay. I also just was gonna say, I think this is also the closest adaptation out of anything we've seen to its extreme detriment. I think. Oh, definitely. Well, because it's, I think we'll get into this later, but it's incredibly close, except just worse in every aspect. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman a little bit. Um, 
This is uh, it's Ang Lee's third in in what is called his Father Knows Best trilogy, um, which I haven't seen any of the others either. But um, I will probably seek them out after watching this. Um, it's a family drama. It's about a father who lives at home with his three adult daughters, um, and each of them are kind of uh, unconventional in some way or another. So one of them is Christian in Taiwan, which is interesting and she's quite straight-laced and one of them is like a businesswoman who like spends all her time at work and has no time for men and one of them is kind of a free-spirited young um kind of sexually adventurous and uh, in every way adventurous uh young woman um really yeah that's how i would describe them I mean, I, I think the middle child is the sexually oh, you're right. adventurous one. I'm getting them a little bit confused. The, if any, if anything, I think the the weak part of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and it's not like tortilla soup does it any better again. But mm-hmm. I think the weak part of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman is the youngest daughter's plotline is yeah, pretty pretty uh... is undeveloped, mm-hmm. especially because like it like you kind of get um, a certain amount of tension when it. It's it's set up like yeah. in this weird love triangle, but then it just kind of goes away. It just it just kind of resolves. Yeah, and she's like, "Oh, I'm pregnant. Okay, bye." And no one says anything. <laughs> They're just like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> peace." Yeah. No, I I definitely think that this is some combination of the older sister Jia Jian and Jia Jian the middle sister's movie like it's tough to say which one of them is kind of they they both kind of carry most of the of the plot but I think it really the main character or the at least the one who I think Ang Lee has the most sympathy for or 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 affection for is the middle is the middle sister she's kind of the most interesting there's no doubt in my mind that like in uh, this movie the driving theme is the relationship between uh Chu the father and the mm-hmm. middle daughter yeah. Jia Qian yeah um so kind of the structure of the movie is that uh, every sunday night the, the the father and the daughters kind of sit down and have a big dinner he's a chef like a former mostly retired but still kind of on call for emergencies a chef at a very fancy restaurant in in Taipei um and he uh, just kind of has to deal with, like, his old-fashioned kind of values and way of approaching his relationship with his daughters um, in this kind of ever-changing are, world, yeah. I would guess. I mean, they're, they're, they represent very uh, different aspects of the modernization, I think, that, w- that was going on in Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, first of all, my first note in my notes on this movie is just I'm so hungry because there's a probably five minute long wordless sequence at the beginning that's just him preparing one of these incredibly uh, bountiful and and uh, delicious meals at the beginning. And I probably would have watched this for 20 minutes with no dialogue or plot whatsoever. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think that might be like my favorite part of the movie. That That opening is just like visually stunning Mm -hmm. and like i don't know it's so all encompassing all encompassingly beautiful yeah it really is and um i read in the imdb 
kind of trivia page that it took them like the better part of two weeks just to film that one uh, montage. And I definitely believe it because it is it, it, it's just so loving and 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 beautiful. Like it's it's a really really beautifully shot um, kind of wordless scene to kick off the movie. Um, and uh, that kind of relationship to food is also kind of a major subplot. And he's he's uh, lost his ability to taste Mr. Chu, the the father character. Um, but uh, it, so throughout the film, he has to kind of make all this food, but he's cut off from actually tasting her or eating any of it. Um, and part of the nice thing, one of the nice things about the movie is that it really takes its time and you just get like the, the deepening of these relationships. You get to know each one of the person really well. Um, each of the three sisters, sure, but also um, Mr. Chu's like kind of old friend, uh, Uncle Wen or, or Old Wen, um, you know, the uh, uh, a single mother who's a friend of one of the daughters and her mother who's a horrible kind of shrewish woman um, <laughs> and her daughter who's like this adorable little girl, um, like the volleyball coach, the airline executive guy, like these are all like they're they're pretty well sketched out considering how long they're in the film. Right. I mean, it juggles a, a relatively large cast pretty well. And I honestly, like, this is not, generally speaking, my type of film. So I kept kind of expecting to get a little bit bored, but it just never happened. Like, I just really enjoyed spending time with these people just living their lives, even if, you know, all they were doing was discussing airline f- business or talking about, you know, their work at Wendy's or whatever. And with, I mean, I think... Two key uh, twists. I think you see the setup of this movie, and you pretty much know what to expect out of it. Yeah, but at, at, with the caveat that, like, the twists did totally floor me. Like, there are things that happen in this film that I did not expect to happen. Right. Um, especially regarding resolutions of certain of the love triangles. Um, and when when they do come to light, it is a super amusing final dinner scene where uh, his secrets are blown into public view in a very big way. Yes. But, I mean, those aside, like, for the most part, you expect, um, you expect, like, these three uh, single women to get in relationships and for the most part that happens mm-hmm. and you kind of end with it yeah. yeah i mean again i think the youngest daughter was kind of underplayed but it's I mean, it could be hard to balance this big of a movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it's just like it's it's an interesting film it's very much of its time so it's kind of fascinating just from that perspective like that's one of the reasons why you watch foreign films especially foreign films that were shot on location is like it gives you a perspective into the life of someone who's been really living a relatively uh, old-fashioned or rural lifestyle in in this part of china at this time or this part of taiwan at this time um it's like just from that angle it's really interesting to watch too and like the the modernization versus the old-fashioned aspect is something that the characters talk about and you kind of just see like in every um every section um it's really heartbreaking when one of the daughters she invests like all her savings into a an, an apartment that she wants to buy, and then it turns out that the developer has totally scammed her and run off with her money, and she lost all her money. Right. Um, and 
like I said, you just begin to care about these people in like a shockingly short period of time. Like old Wen has probably only had, uh, you know, a couple minutes worth of screen time when he kind of keels over and, you know, spoiler alert, he gets sick and goes to the hospital and eventually dies. Um, though it's, you're like genuinely really sad. Like, yeah, you feel it. Like it's, it kind of hits you in your bones. Um, yeah, it's just, a, it was just a really great movie. Like I really liked it. Like, and I think there's a lot of very subtle foreshadowing mm-hmm. cast throughout the movie. I love that, uh, opening sequence so much. And so after the film was over, I, rewound and watched the first 10 minutes or so again and there you you understand things <laughs> that you couldn't have understood like there's a phone call for example that he gets while he's con- he's uh making that that opening dinner that you don't understand who he's talking to or what he's talking about and it makes sense after you watch the movie um i think it does kind of the interactions between people it rewards that kind of rewatchability because you you pick up on things that that you didn't know were going to happen Right. And it makes sense. You know, the the resolution of the movie makes sense. I don't know if we should actually, you know, I don't know how many of our audience will ever watch the movie, are going to watch the movie, you know, or we're going to spoil the movie for them. But um, when you understand who the father is truly in love with, you know, you uh, you understand a lot more, for example, why he's been um, making lunch for the little girl and taking the lunch that her mother made for her and eating it himself. <laughs> Um, it's oh maybe maybe Infernal Affairs slash Departed um, I was going to say it's probably the best film on our list but I forgot Infernal Affairs is at the back end yeah I mean um, I in, think it's I think it's stronger Affairs than and, any Infernal Affairs and The Departed both yeah um, well, you think it's better than Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven? Um, I th- yeah, I think it's a better watch. Mm. Those two movies require a level of dedication, just because they're really, really long. <laughs> this is not long. This is a very easy film to watch. Um, it's it's digestible. Yeah, it certainly was like kind of the most enjoyable film we've watched so far. I, I, you know, it just, just depends on what kind of movie you like more, whether you think it's better than the other films on the list. But, yeah, which is why it's disappointing that uh, Tortilla Soup was uh, so bad that we could only find it on YouTube. Um, yes. Split into ten parts, so if you want to watch this movie, you're kind of out of luck unless you want to click through every... Uh, you can either watch it at a very low quality all in one go, or you can watch it in a slightly higher quality split into 10 pieces, so you get to kind of choose your poison there. Um, Tortilla Soup is as close to a shot-to-shot remake as we're likely to see, I think. I haven't seen Ringu, so I'm not sure how closely it tracks with the ring, but Tortilla Soup, like, it's, it is bizarre. Like, it has no uh, no visual identity or originality whatsoever no and it waters everything about eat drink man woman down mm-hmm. to the point where like the scenes that they do translate they kind of don't mean anything yeah like it, it, t- for one thing one thing that bothered me right off the bat is that it takes things that are subtext and just makes them text and so when you it, when you don't have to work at the movie 
like when you don't have to sit there and kind of think about what things mean and stuff like that, it makes it less engaging of an experience. Like for example, the thing it, it, it all happens in the first couple minutes, but like in the first couple minutes of the first film, like you get a brief glimpse at like a list of city names and like some flight information to tell you that the woman works as an airline executive. That's her job. Um, in the in tortilla soup she like picks up the phone and she's like as an airline executive i like blah blah it was something like so <laughs> bald-faced that i was like are you shitting me like <laughs> like let make us work a little bit like you know it doesn't have to be you know brothers karamazov or something like that but like you know let us let us work a little bit and try to figure out what these people are and, and what what they're talking about um i actually think i think the the worst offense of, of that in this movie and i mean it's kind of a spoiler but at the end of eat drink man woman mm-hmm. um the middle daughter like has made makes dinner for her father right mm-hmm. as he had been making food this entire movie for everyone else and he like criticizes her soup saying like oh you put too much ginger, ginger. in it yeah and like it's this realization that washes over them that he can taste the ginger in the soup and he just asks for more soup mm-hmm. and they sort of have this moment um whereas in tortilla soup he literally says i can taste again <laughs> yeah it, it, it sort of robs any sort of like emotional gravitas from what is probably one of the more powerful scenes in the original movie yeah yeah and in in, in every way like it's not just that it's a shot for shot remake. They also just took a lot of the dialogue and translated it and like threw in some Spanish words and like put it in these characters' mouths, which is I guess I guess what they were trying to do is make a point about the universality of the film that you could just take this film that's about a Taiwanese family in Taipei and make it about a Mexican family in Los Angeles. Um but especially watching them like almost back to back, which I did, um it really really points out all the ways that Tortilla Soup is like the worst film. Um, and what I think is really fascinating is, so the the opening sequence of Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was so absorbing, and I really, really liked it, and I watched it, and it made me hungry, and it made me want to try these flavors. Um, I love Mexican food, like really, really love Mexican food, and the opening of Tortilla Soup did nothing for me. It just looked like Food Network, basically, and then I found out that it's because that was actually, like, like staged by two food network chefs and for some reason it just like i don't know what it is it did not look appetizing to me and i was like how can in the in the beginning of Adrian man woman like he like turns a frog inside out and like blows into like some kind of chicken skin or something i'm not sure exactly what was happening there but it's stuff that should be a little bit off-putting and yet it still looks delicious but in tortilla soup like he's making food that I love, like guacamole and you know traditional Mexican food, and, uh, and it just just looks, looks flat. Looks like yeah, it's like it looks too perfect or something. Yeah, it. I don't know what it was. It just looked like it didn't look like food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a disappointing movie. It's not a totally. It, it's not a totally. Uh, like virtueless film like there are some good performances and there some of the additions to the dialogue and stuff are fine like it's it's fine it's just nowhere I, near as good i guess i just i mean 
I wonder if I if I watched it first if my opinion would change. But I feel like like first of like as kind of dull as the love triangle between the youngest daughter and her friend was in Eat Drink Man Woman. Mm-hmm. Like in Tortilla Soup, that it's not even a love triangle. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, that character like does not exist. But then they like introduce some later like tension, I guess, where he like gets mad at her for cleaning his apartment and I was like, I don't yeah. give a shit about this. They have like, one small fight. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. The thing and is they that make up and I was like, okay. With a with a film like this where there's no you know, this is not a film in which like you know, there's there's a giant space station coming to destroy your planet or like someone has a plan to release a virus over the you know airport or something like that like it's a it's a film in which the the tension and drama is coming from interpersonal relationships and what makes that work is uh that you don't know the inner lives of these characters like you can see what they do and you can kind of get glimpses but it needs that kind of revealing of the mystery the kind of hint that there's tension and uh history and old grudges and and things like that moving beneath the surface you need to be able to feel that and to wonder at what it is for a movie like this to work at all um and tortilla soup didn't get that it didn't understand what made the first film work it thought what made the first film work was lots of pictures of food and um, you know, family members bickering and particular shots because they copied all the shots. Um, it, it didn't. It didn't really understand what made Eat Drink Man Woman work, and so of course it was never going to be able to replicate it. Um, because it did. It didn't know. It, it didn't know or wasn't able to communicate what its characters were thinking but not saying. Right. I mean, like. They dropped the entire uh, subplot of the oldest daughter, like, basically completely lying about her, yeah. her past love life. Yeah. Um, which, in the first movie, is, I think, I think an important aspect of her, feel, like, in a way, feeling guilty for... Um, like, cause in both movies, the mother, the family's mother had died mm-hmm. very young and it seen in the first movie, it really felt like the oldest daughter tried to fill this maternal role Yeah, and by sort of creating this elaborate story of being like heartbroken. It, yeah. And then, then it turns out that the middle daughter, Jia Chen, she discovers that basically it's, like she's all created, it's all a lie. She's created this broken heart backstory to like to justify to justify like becoming the matriarch of the family basically um and you know what i loved about that is that jetchan found out that her sister had been lying her to her for their entire relationship since she was in college and like in any other movie she would have like stormed over and like the next scene would have been like at the house and she's saying you lied to me about this, and then they would have had a big, like, screaming match about it. In this movie, they never discuss it. Like, she just learns, and it just becomes part of what she understands about her sister, and it lets her, like, say things to her sister that her sister needs to hear, but, like, it never, like, they never talk about it. She never, right. like, uses it just to embarrass her sister or to make her feel bad for lying or anything like that. Um, right, I mean, I because, I mean... Yeah, it's again. It's like there's a lot of subtlety in the film, and her discovering this was like her way of letting the oldest sister 
move on with her life. Mm-hmm. And which is, I think, imparts... Um, well, be, and because when you watch the movie, and like you, and or when you start watching the movie, you get this sense that uh, the middle sister is the one that has her life together, and she's gonna move on. Mm-hmm. She has this new apartment. She has this job offer in Amsterdam. Yeah, in Amsterdam, right? Mm-hmm. But but really, as as it develops, like it's the middle sister that is holding this family together almost. Mm-hmm. And it's her at the end of the movie with her father, yeah. when everyone else has moved on with their lives. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, a very important part of this movie. Yeah. Which tortilla soup didn't have. Fail. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we keep racking on this, but it's really hard not to. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, it's a, it's a really great movie. It's very subtle. But also, it 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 does a similar thing, I guess, to True Detective, where it sets up these what you think are character archetypes and then subverts them in interesting ways. And um, I don't know, it just it it just it works really well. It's very charming. The poster that's on Wikipedia is horrible. It makes it look like a totally different kind of movie. And then the quote at the pull quote at the bottom is, "It's hard to tell where the sex stops and the food begins," which is just ew. Like that's just <laughs> disgusting. Why would you use that to advertise the movie? <laughs> yeah, that seems like a totally different movie. That's not the movie I watched. I don't know about you, but this this movie it was very easy to tell where the sex stopped and the food began. Um. What was your favorite part of Tortilla Soup? What do you think the strongest aspect of it was? Well, you know, again, in the performances of the daughters were not that great, but I did think Hector Elizondo uh, was pretty good as the um, kind of patriarch of the family. Um, and he's a little bit, let's just say he's a little bit younger looking um, then Si Hung Lung, who plays the older man in, um, uh, in Each Drink Man Woman, which makes the final I revelation agree. like a little bit less shocking or, or startling. I agree. Um, uh, I also, I quite liked the moment in the kitchen after the first kind of big meal, um, when the three daughters are talking amongst each other and they're, fighting uh, in... Oh, and they smash the plates? They smash the plates and then they start dancing together. I thought it was a nice deviation from nothing like that that happened in Tortilla Soup. So I was like, maybe you know, because there is a cultural difference shockingly, there is a cultural difference between, you know uh, Taiwanese people and Latino people and I thought maybe <laughs> this was going to be make a little bit more of that, and then it just did not because it just took all of the words from the other film and plugged them right into Hector's mouth. So, um, but I thought that was at least a good stab at at showing how the different cultures might react to to the same situation. Um, I actually, although I really liked um, Madame Liang in the first film, I thought Raquel Welsh playing. Um, the other mother did an excellent job of being completely unbearable. Yeah, she like came. She flirted with being too over the top, but dialed it back just enough that it was believable and horrific. Yes, it was painful <laughs> and awkward, and like 
just was pretty much the perfect way to portray this character. Yeah. Where you're like, oh my god, it's going to go into this. Well, yeah. So for next episode, we are watching Ring and Ringu. So that will be terrifying. A very different cinematic experience than these, I think. Uh, um, yeah, I think Ring is different from Eat, Drink, Fan Woman by yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> so people should uh, should watch those if they want to follow along. Um, we got a couple of uh, Twitter recommendations for uh, m- remakes that we can watch. We're still looking for others so that we can have a little bit of a... Uh, of a, uh, uh, you know, a couple to choose from. Um, but the two suggestions that we've had so far, both from Madeline Fischel on Twitter, are um, Zach Braff in the remake of The Italian Last Kiss, which sounds horrible, and Jungle to Jungle, which is apparently a remake of a French movie, which also sounds horrible. So <laughs> when we open ourselves up to listener suggestions, we get a lot of abuse, is what I'm going to Yeah. But, uh, Unless we get more suggestions, it definitely looks like we'll be watching those too. So people should suggest other things, please. Come on, guys. There are other movies out there you want us to talk about. I was watching, I was talking about this movie with Satoko, and she only kind of remembered it. And she was like, is that the movie where people get killed by, like, their DVR or something? <laughs> like, DVR is, for some reason, so much funnier than a VHS. Like, <laughs> you set up the season pass on the TiVo, <laughs> now you will die in seven days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't watch it, don't watch it. And then you hear those like TiVo sounds. Oh no.